Hello friends, welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Today's guest is my friend Javin Bernakovich. Javin is a permaculture design consultant who also specializes in life design coaching and consulting. And so there's some really interesting parallels between the ecology of regenerative agriculture models or land use design and life design. And so uh, Javin and I actually spoke a lot about that um, in our first episode. He's been on the show before back in January. So if, if you haven't already heard that episode, I'd really encourage you to go back to season two, episode four. And in that first conversation, Javin and I talked a lot about uh, the things that he learned from going through a period of time in his life where uh, he was struggling with uh, his health for a little while. He, a period of illness had really taken him out and diminished his mental and cognitive and physical capacities. His uh, capacity to, to do work and just to get through life was severely diminished. And not long after his illness, he w- happened to be in a car accident, which again, um, kind of took him out for a while. So um, it was fascinating hearing from, from Javin what he learned by going through those, uh, those challenges recently. And then I, I decided to invite Javin on the show uh, a second time because Javin is also, in, in addition to all the other things he does that are fascinating, he's also a filmmaker. And Javin has just completed filming for a short documentary that he's working on called Facing Fire. So in this second conversation, we talk at length about this uh, really interesting documentary that he's working on. Not only because the film itself sounds so interesting, but also to explore what are the things that we can learn about humanity and about ourselves from studying our relationship with fire. And so that's largely what uh, Javin's film is about, and I'll let him do a much better job of explaining it. Uh, in our conversation, we, we leap from discussing wildfires and how they have evolved into the beast that they now are and our relationship with them. We also talk about the cycles of life and of nature at the microscopic level, uh, in the, the roots and soil of the forest, and also in relation to our own lives as human beings. So there's a lot of really great content in this episode. It's a little bit longer than some of our episodes, but I know that you're going to love it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Javin. Javin, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks so much, Ben. It's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you again. Yeah, it was. I really enjoyed the the, uh, the first episode that we did together, and uh, after re-listening to it, I was actually out walking the dog once, uh, probably a few weeks after we recorded that first conversation, and it was uh, it was really interesting how pieces of the conversation jumped out at me as as though I wasn't there, like the one recording it with you. <laughs> I was like listening to someone else's podcast, but the material was just so relevant to my life and. Just so many things that have been on my mind lately that I just thought, man, this is this is a guy and this is a conversation that everybody needs to hear. So I've shared that first podcast that we did. I've shared it with many, many people and, and heard lots of great feedback. So I could tell that uh, you're someone that we needed to bring back again for a second conversation. So thanks again for being willing to do that. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
So uh, the first thing I'd like to ask you about, Javin, is you're, you're completing a documentary film right now, and uh, it's kind of a first time for you as a filmmaker. The film is called Facing Fire. Tell me a little bit about Facing Fire. Yeah, so my brother is a pretty well-known uh, director of photography in Alberta and has won a number of awards and is generally really good at what he does at 4K film productions. Uh, Aaron Bernakovich and we've been talking about doing a project together for years after doing some some small projects together and <clears throat> he's reached out a number of times for input on on characters and on story and on plot and things of that nature and we actually did a eddie together a big rock commercial uh, years ago and uh, he reached out last year maybe two months before now and story hive had put out tell us story hive had put out uh, a call for documentaries and he said why don't we do a documentary about your work why don't we do it about you know sustainable design and regenerative agriculture and permaculture and i said well it seems like the 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 production schedule goes over winter which is not a very <laughs> attractive time to show living growing systems uh, for north of the 49th parallel. So I said, well, why don't we take it in reverse? Why don't we talk about a problem that is quite common to everyone right now on the West coast of North America? And why don't we show some of the more intriguing solutions, more of the solutions that maybe folks have not necessarily, um, thought about things that folks may not be aware of and really trace the line, uh, the line of can we go back in history and see where this started? Can we understand how the conversation came about? And can we trace the mentality, the decisions to how we got into this place where we're getting uh, regular intensity of wildfires, increasing intensity of wildfires, more damage, more smoke, and more disruption to life? And he was pretty keen. And so we pitched uh, the doc. We actually didn't get in on the first round, the first 30. Um, TELUS ended up wanting to put another 15 or 10 projects through, and we got in. So that's the that, short That must have been pretty genesis. exciting to, uh, to be vying for one of these prizes. Like, there's some prize money there, obviously, to get your film produced. And then to find out that uh, after all that work, you weren't picked. And then kind of Phoenix from the Ashes, surprise, you are getting some money. What was that like? Oh, it's fun, you know. Um, it's how Telus picks the the different uh, projects is is pretty hush hush. You don't really know how they do it or why they do it or what the conversation is. And uh, me and a friend, we tried to go through and figure out who got picked and what were the strengths. And there were some there were some correlations, there were some patterns we saw. But generally, we looked at it. We said, well, we did. We put out a really good uh, pitch. We put out a really good idea. Uh, it's very necessary and I had resigned myself to work on it kind of on the side for the next year and do it at a much lesser production quality. So doing uh, Zoom As kind of a passion project. Yeah, as a passion project to do like Zoom interviews and to continue to develop the, yep. po the podcast off of it and uh, all of that. And then, uh, and then we just kind of walked on and I started booking other work because I had left my schedule open. And then I, I got into the problem of, Oh, now you have it. And, um, it was, 
it was one of those moments that's like, okay, I do want this and I've got a lot <laughs> of things going on. And then as we talked about last time, two days later, I got in a car accident and had to, um, uh, really had to focus on recovery and actually ended up getting an extension on submission because, uh, I just, I wasn't at the place that everybody else was at because I was still recovering. Wow. Yeah. That must've been really intense to all of a sudden, uh, be juggling a full work schedule and commitments that you'd made to clients and things and in, in the work that you do. Um, plus then all of a sudden needing to recover from physical injury, uh, all the stuff that we talked about in the previous episode. And then now you've got this film to produce. So the, uh, the grant got awarded to you, I think in the summer months would it have been, and then you had kind of that, that fall and winter to, to get it shot and a bit of an extension. How, what was kind of your production timeline just in a, in a nutshell? Yeah. So September is when we were awarded and the, the regular production schedule was, you know, shooting all principal photography and then, um, developing script. I think script deadline was mid November. Um, and then we had, uh, first rough cut was mid Feb and then fine cut was April 30th. And then delivery would have been in two days time, May 31st. And I pretty quickly, when we got to February and we were coming up on the, the, the rough cut deadline and I was just getting into photography, just getting into filming, uh, because it was six months of. We talked about in the last podcast, it was six months of being reduced by 80 to 90% capacity. So there was really not a lot going on. And I was, I was working and learning and reading and and doing a lot of the background, but because I was so cognitively impaired, I wasn't able to process, um, not, not without desire or want or frustration and not being able to, but once I reached out to uh, Telus and my incredible manager there and just said, listen, folks, it's not for want of, of love or money or trying or, or, or any of these things to make this doc happen. I'm just not there and I, I need an extension. I'm, a, I'm roughly two and a half months behind. And so there's actually a hard deadline on their end. So I've got a, I've got a firm deliverable deadline in, in the third week of August and uh, we are absolutely on track now. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fantastic. So the, the editing is completed. Tell me a little bit about the story that you're telling in this, this short film. So the story is really interesting. When, when you look at fire as a concept, as a conversation, as an element, it's been with us and it's been on our planet for pretty much its entirety. And as, as soon as there was vegetation, as soon as there was ligandous strains, carb, carbon strained vegetation, we had fire because fire is a reaction. It's a reaction to organics. And that reaction has shaped and formed our ecology. There's a number of what's called fire regimes, which are ways in which, or the frequency in which, and the characteristics of which fire burns in different ecologies. So in boreal forests, that that regime can be within five years or 500 years, depending on where you are and the precipitation and the temperature and just a number of factors. And that's what's so interesting about this. As soon as you say that, your mind shifts to an ecological mindset. We are not on mm. a, a linear uh, scientific reductionist mindset. It has to be this. There are a multitude of factors, right? There's, there's this idea that simple is A to B. So if I understand A, I can get to B. And then uh, 
complex is A to B to C to D to E. Complicated right. is A to S to, it's a network. Now we're into a network where after the fact, we can usually look back and say, oh, that linked to that, linked to that, linked to that. But at the beginning, it's very hard to see that. Um, I don't know if we talked about um, uh, Nicholas Taleb last time, but his work in anti-fragility and speaking about systems and that it's it's folly to try and predict ecology beforehand, uh, but it's important to become anti-fragile, to create resiliency. And that's been a driving factor in all of this work is to understand we live in a land of fire and a number of First Nations and Indigenous folks that I've spoken to have these two great sayings which keep coming up time and time again. Uh, you can have fires of chance or you can have fires of choice. And so hmm. for 20, 30, 40,000 years, all depending on the archaeological evidence that you're citing, First Nations were in North America and they worked with fire. They realized that fire was existing and so they decided to proof a lot of their camps, a lot of their trails, a lot of their uh, gathering and hunting grounds with fire. Mm -hmm. They 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 brought down vegetative loads. They ensured that they could have a, a firewood forest the next year. This was a, a cool discovery where um, First Nations in the northern uh, Alberta Slavey area would burn out uh, certain sections of forest for certain types of wood and then come back the next year after it had seasoned. And that was the entire firewood near the next camp that they would come back to. So Oh, wow. So the, they would just kind of harvest the charred remnants of that forest and all the deadfall that was remaining after it had burned through or how did that work that's right and you would be allowing for the storms and the windstorms to push down a lot of that wood for you it was it was uh. a really intelligent and highly sophisticated way of burning and i think i've said this to a number of um a number of interviewees and, and colleagues i think this is one of the premier moments where western civilization can look at indigenous knowledge in a in a, a level to level, an eye to eye way, and go, I get it. There are some incredibly sophisticated ways, and 20 to 30 to 40,000 years of practice is empirical. I think that's something that a lot of people forget. If you have 40,000 years of practice, that's empirical evidence. That, that's, yeah. that's trial and error and R&D that you can't do in a lab. And yeah, no kidding. The cool thing is, is that these landscapes were completely and utterly changed by fire. We have this weird pastoral uh, conser uh, conservation idea that this landscape was not modified by humans, but it was. It was oh, absolutely, incredibly. Yeah. And in the books 1491 and 1493, pre and post contact, great books, highly recommend them. You hear about how you could ride through the forest of Eastern, um, Eastern North America and there was no underbrush, which is something that in the old world you'd see a lot of because fire was really taken out of the routine of management. And partially it was because the colonizing mindset and the, the old world mindset was that fire, quote unquote, fire was primitive. And they had graduated hmm. to industrial fire, the fire of the steam engine, the fire of the coal box. And any other fire was not a good tool. And this is some of that reductionist thinking that we were talking about before, you know, what are the principles, what are the practices you can take from some of this research? And one of them is when you start to cleave off certain tools because of uh, a wrongheaded or a domain dependent mindset, this domain dependence of 
sophistication is complication and is science, etc. Except for the fact that if you can manage an entire area with just fire and fire alone, it's an exceptionally uh, easy to use tool if you understand its properties. There's there's an amazing story I want to share from uh, A Time to Burn by Henry T. Lewis, incredible researcher out of the University of um, University of Alberta. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, he interviewed a number of folks up in the Slavey region. And there's this great story, which just kind of amplifies uh, uh, the conversation between uh, colonizer and First Nation. And there was a forester and uh, firefighter from Fort Mac who was working with a couple of indigenous folks there. And in, in true fashion, couldn't keep up to them. They were too fast. So he was, you know, behind, behind, behind. And he was walking along this trail and they were doing some forestry work and he comes across a fire on the trail and he freaks out and he gets all <laughs> alarmist and he puts it out. Whew. Save the day. Walks a little bit further, finds another fire. Oh my, like, what are these guys doing? These guys, you know, starts, starts cursing them out and starts judging them. Puts it out. Finally comes across a third fire that is not only burning on the trail, but it's being used to cook lunch and basically tears a strip out of these guys. What are you doing? Like, I could, I could fire you guys all now. This is ridiculous. You know, like, what do you think you're doing? And they go, well, how do you think the trail's maintained? How do you think there's hmm. no trees in the trail? This has been done for thousands of years. I like, what are you thinking? <laughs> and, and what an example of, of Western civilization coming upon indigenous people the world over. And instead of saying really cool, like what's happening here and what's the level of interaction? What's the level, what's the quality of life as we talked about last podcast, how are you living? And is that of value to you? And do you have time for, um, intimacy and play and, and culture, or are you slaves to your work? And this was one of these great examples that by lighting fires seasonally, usually in the spring, and Henry T. Lewis also made an incredible film called Fires of Spring, which I highly recommend people check out, um, interviewing, again, indigenous folks in the, the slavery region there in the late 70s, early 80s. When you, when you use this systematically, when you use this cyclically, you end up creating a huge host of benefits. And there's there's just so many benefits. One of the things that I encountered, I, this is great. I'm so glad you asked me to do this podcast because I love talking about this. And I have to <laughs> I remind myself- I hear your passion and I love it. <laughs> that I need to like take a breath and let you interject. So I'll tell this last bit and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop and let you- No, it's all good. Guide again. Keep going. Um, so something that a lot of people don't understand is that within the soil, there's something called the soil food web. Just like there's a food web above ground that usually starts with the sun and the sun working with plants through photosynthesis and then the plants producing what they produce and then being eaten by primary um, uh, primary consumers and then secondary and then you know all the way up to, to humans because we become the apex dominant life form on the planet for better or for worse. <clears throat> there's a similar soil food web. There's a food web within the soil called the soil food web. And what happens is when plants take in carbon dioxide and, and photons and, and, and sunlight, the incredible process of photosynthesis breaks off some of that carbon and create carbohydrates. And those carbohydrates are used to fuel the plant, but also they are put out through the roots in an area called the rhizosphere, which is the first few millimeters, really small area around those fine roots of a plant. 
and those carbohydrates have a charge. And that charge specifically attracts either a bacteria or a fungi. And there's so mm. many different types. And they're interested in that food because carbohydrate is a food source. And what right. they do within their daily their daily work is they go around and they mine and they interact with other organisms and they bring different types of nutrition close to a plant. So they bring minerals, they bring vitamins, they bring you know other types of nutrition close to this plant. Now this is where that it gets is really crazy. Interesting. <laughs> no, right? but just that just that part, Javin, is like I don't think people know that. Like nope. I've I've heard a lot about soil health through my work in filmmaking and in the agriculture sector and I don't know that I've ever had it explained in quite that way where it, it for me it creates this visual of like you know this this plant has these tiny little hairs that only go you know maybe a few inches maybe a foot or two uh, for larger plants or tap roots that go deeper but essentially a, a fairly small radius of soil that they're reaching into with their little hairs and fingers of roots but then they're electrochemically sending out a signal mm. to living creatures, these bacteria and fungi, they're, they're alive. Mm -hmm. And they're like coming in like an army and, and bringing with them these ingredients that the plant needs that it wouldn't reach otherwise. That's, that's mind blowing. <laughs> like the, they're communicating. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. We'll get to why conventional agriculture and specifically, um, artificial fertilizers and and pesticides can disrupt this cycle and create dependency of a plant. It's kind of like creating a chemical dependency or drug dependency um, and removes the relationship, removes the incentivization to create relationships. So there's a, a second level here where <laughs> um, the predators of these bacteria and these fungi, uh, which are uh, microarthropods, nematodes, and other types of, of, of fungi and other types of bacteria and protozoa. Basically, where, where there is prey, there is predator. And so around this rhizosphere, again, a few millimeters, in comes the predators. And the predators feast and feed on the fungi and the bacteria. And only then, then and only then, and this is the next part, then and only then is the necessary ingredients for the plant are they bioavailable through the excrement of the predators and through the process of predation? So you literally need the food chain intact to feed the plant. Wow. So if, uh, this is a perfect tie-in to uh, last week's conversation that I had with a man named Bill Harder, where we talked the entire episode, we were talking about death and dying. And one thing he said uh, that is so fascinating is that in in our world in, in, and in nature, life can only exist because of death. There mm. has to be death in order for anything to be alive. And so it, it's exactly what you're saying. And, and, for, and in order to have there be the nutrition that provides that life, I think sometimes we really like to, to simplify things. And so you can take sort of the 30 foot thousand view that um, this individual that you were speaking with last week, and it's completely 100% correct and great to say that uh, death begets life and life begets death. And then if you zoom in at 20,000 feet, then you see a few more of the steps and then 10,000 feet and five. And now when you're microscopically close, the world just explodes. And so the myscropacy, the 
the the work underneath the microscope of seeing all of the incredible living organisms underneath the slide really does expand a mindset that there are so many incredible intricate parts of nature that we are still just understanding and i think generally in western civilization there's this idea that we're done we figured everything out but it's <laughs> really not the case it's like we've we've painted things with with big broad brushstrokes and we've created mentality with big broad brushstrokes and so we've got this really interesting mindset problem where we think we know but we really haven't gotten down to the the small pieces so if we connect this all back with fire uh a lot of indigenous people would burn in the spring and in the fall. Usually when there is still in the spring where there's still snow in the trees. So that way if you burnt the grasslands, you had a natural fire break or the trees were still quite moist. And what was so interesting about this is there's something called the albedo effect, which is the color of the ground either increases or decreases the temperature because of its ability to reflect solar radiation. So white reflects solar radiation really well, black absorbs solar radiation really well. Right. So if you think about it this way, one of the major mitigating factors of plant growth north of the 49th parallel across Canada is not ambient temperature, soil temperature. Because these microorganisms need a certain temperature spike to really get active and really get going. And that's why we see major growth spurts in June, July, and August. That's why everyone's like, we have two weeks of summer when you really right. think about it as a as a grower, as a farmer, or as a, as a livestock, um, as a livestock Producer. rearer or yeah. husbander. And what's so interesting about that is if you burn the grass, you are jump-starting the heat cycle within the soil. Hmm. So grass is not a huge fuel load. It's a very you know small amount of fuel load. And so the, the heat isn't dramatic as you would in uh, a wildfire, forest fire, or a firestorm, which is the escalation of that. So it's really interesting that you're jump-starting the heat, which is one of these one of these things that has always been colloquially talked about or um, talked about where, yeah, if you burn, you get growth right away. And everyone's always talking about it's nutrition, right? It's nutrition, it's nutrition. If you burn the plants, it provides nutrition. Well, there's there's some nutrition in 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 burnt substance, but predominantly you create water holding capacity because you've you've usually created some sort of recalcitrant carbon, which is um, a crystallized carbon. So this is what people talk about when they're talking about terra preta or biochar, where you do a slow burn of carboniferous material and you, the gases slowly come out of the material of the, the wood or uh, really fibrous um, vegetative material. And so you get a really porous substance that has a huge amount of surface area. And if you have a huge amount of surface area, you have a huge ability to hold water. Interesting. And you also have the ability to hold all of these microorganisms within the soil. So, so regular burning created, uh, think of it as like Soviet style apartment complexes <laughs> where you just stuffed people in. You get all of that, you get a bit of nutrition, but you also get a lot of heat. And so once you had those, those early shoots, you'd have more interest of those primary, uh, uh, primary consumers. So you'd have a lot of small game, which would be larger game. And so you were basically asking the grocery store to come close to you. <laughs> and it made perfect sense to ensure that this was happening around your camp or around the area that you were living. Wow. It seems so, well, to the ignorant um, person who doesn't understand at all, it just seems like some 
like they must be crazy to do that mm. and then at but at best it seems just simplistic like oh they're just they're just pre-burning so that it doesn't burn by chance later mm-hmm. but there's so much more going on and it's mm-hmm. so much complexity to it and we're getting a little bit deep into like some of the uh, the biology and the and the biochemistry of all of this which is fascinating but I'm, I'm really interested too in how uh, so much of this really applies to more than just the natural systems that are occurring in these root systems or even just within the above ground food cycle that you mentioned as well it also uh, can be applied to our modern lives as human beings and our mental, spiritual, and and physical uh, wellness as well. Mm. And I'd love to, to kind of dive into that because last time in our first conversation, we did talk a little bit about how some of the environmental systems and cycles and principles that you work with in land design are often reflected in our internal lives as well. And, and you really saw that when you were uh, going through this prolonged six month long recovery period from your car accident from uh, an illness that really took the wind out of your sails and and knocked you down uh diminished your your mental capacity as you mentioned earlier by like 80 percent so you started to see these parallels um i'd love to explore that a little bit as you're as you're still kind of telling me uh more about this this story that facing fire is is telling what what are some of the uh, the applications that you started seeing in telling this story and in capturing this story and interviewing people, these, like, did you have moments where you started thinking, Hmm, that's like people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In a big way, there's, there's a fundamental concept, which Richard Feynman, uh, the physicist and polymath started and most recently and most spectacularly and publicly, um, Elon Musk has, has really popularized this idea of first principles of coming to first principles of, of what is the underlying principles or concepts here and has the experience or has the development of any industry, any application, any project followed that along or have they deviated? And if so, have they taken up a fair amount of work because of it? Because if you don't work with first principles, you have to add in the work because there's these flywheels, there's these cycles that, nature does by itself for itself. And if you work outside of those cycles, then you're working against it, which means it takes work. It takes more of your work, your time, your money, your energy, and usually your sleep. Cause if you're taking more <laughs> of those first few, then sleep is what suffer. It's one of my favorite metrics of, of if I'm working with my, my own personal first principles and what's true for Javin or not. And I've got a really, a really good mentor, really good friend. We've both been working in ecological design and um, he plants on average something to the order of like 10 to 50,000 trees a year, both here and internationally working in Haiti and Africa. Wow. And and we kind of go back and forth because when you have your pulse on the the ecological status of the planet, and it's not just climate. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are getting wrong right now. We are in climate chaos to be sure, but there's an ecological disruption that's unparalleled. We've lost upwards of 70 to 90% of, of organisms on this planet since the 1960s. Uh, we've had up to 75% drop of insects over the last 50 years. This is not a natural conversation. So I think for, for the folks that go back and forth on the climate conversation, you can kind of take a step back and go, okay, great. Well, what's the bigger conversation here? Climate is 
is an output. It is a feedback loop, and it's also a part of the entire cycle. And similarly with people, and this is where my conversation with, with Brandon, who I'm speaking about here, comes in. I was speaking with Brandon. We've had a lot of moments where we've, we've just kind of sat there um, overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with what a psychologist once called uh, eco-despair when I was telling him what, how hmm. I was feeling about the world. And as I was speaking to him just a few nights ago, I was saying I've never felt more hopeful in my own efforts and more aware of the realities of what we're facing. And the realities of what we're facing today were not the realities 10 years ago when I had this end of suburbia moment. Like we can't live like this forever. This is not a good idea, not only for planet, but for selves. And when we were talking about it, he goes, well, why? Like, why would that be? And it's because I'm working within my own principles. I have everybody who's born is born with, let's say a, a hand, you know, you're dealing, um, dealing uh, a card game and you have a hand of cards. That's the deck you've been dealt. That's the hand you've been dealt. You can work to work outside of those, or you can work to ignore certain aspects or qualities of your, your personality or your strengths or your zones of brilliance where you just come alive, but you do so at your peril. And mm. the more you do that, the harder you have to work. And two, two relations there that I just want to bring in. One, uh, I was listening to Adam Savage, who uh, was part of Mythbusters and does a lot of uh, industrial lights and magic and tested, and he's got a number of great shows and books and, and et cetera. But one of the things he talked about was he, he really wanted to be an actor when he was young. And when he went out and he started acting and meeting other actors, they were interested in the craft of acting. They were interested in the nuance and the heights of the lows of the conversations. And he realized that there's a difference of wanting to be an actor and wanting to refine your craft. And that's the difference between seeing somebody out there and saying, I want to do that instead of saying, who am I and how do I operate on a daily conversation? And how can I work within my own zones of brilliance and the places that I just come alive and I'm I'm naturally brilliant and honor those and work with those and, and be with those pieces. And it was one of those moments where when you listen, somebody else come to the same conclusion as you have uh, multiple, multiple times with multiple people, it's really that moment. And that's where my conversation with Brandon really comes in is that I feel that for one of the first times I'm gathering all of my strengths. I love telling stories. I love movies. My brother and I would watch movies back to back, you know, and, and the subject matter notwithstanding, sometimes it was Ace Ventura back to back. So <laughs> I think we've, I think we've increased our, our quality, nothing wrong against Ace Ventura. It's just not the height of filmmaking. Um, I like telling stories. I like sharing things. It's one of the things I love the most. I just never really thought to share in a visual medium but now I can't get over seeing people's shots and people's B-roll and like, okay, I'm, I'm flying the same drone as that person's flying. Why does my shot look washed out? Or why, why are those colors muddled? Or why does it look like it was taken on a handy cam? Like I have a very hungry mind and it's, it's kind of brought out this piece of me that I'm really excited for. So as, as you have as well, we've both pitched again for this next round of Story Hive. And I have a third documentary in the back of my mind in September because I ended up meeting these incredible First Nations down from the Yurok tribe, which is in the northern Northern California near the Klamath River. And they have an incredible organization called cultureoffire.org. 
and basically they're they're educating others, educating um, other First Nations. They're educating um, others in their their tribe and their their associates, and they're educating Cal Fire, which is the premier firefighting organization of California, how to burn prescriptively, how to burn traditionally. And they said, after I, I met them recently and interviewed them, they said, you have to come down and burn with us. You have to like <laughs> learn how to do this firsthand. And I was like, absolutely, that sounds great. And so now I've got this other idea for a documentary. It's a point of view video diary documentary. Um, and I'm probably not gonna go with the glib title in my head, which is um, white man learning how to burn. I, I'll probably <laughs> go with just learning to burn. Um, it's just a little less offensive to, I think, a greater audience. Funny to me, but that's the cool thing about filmmaking is you have to start thinking about the audience and how you want people to be open to it and, and, and work with it. So for sure, really, so if do, I, do they seem open to this, uh, to adapt or adopting more of that traditional knowledge and, and using some of those strategies so that, I mean, you would know that the millions of dollars that are spent in in forest fire and wildfire fighting efforts it's it's mind blowing i think everybody is open right now i think everybody's looking for solutions and the big idea is how do we make it happen and in canada at least i haven't spoken to anybody in um firefighting in the us forestry service down in well i have actually but I, we haven't spoken specifically about this the major obstacles to doing that type of work in Canada is creating the system of knowledge that allows you to know when these things regularly burnt before 120 years of fire exclusion took place and fire suppression and when to do it safely and mm. who takes the liability if it gets out of control. Uh, and that's primarily the issues. I spoke with a, a great guy, um, uh, natural resources of Canada, Chris, I forget his last name, but he'll, He'll, his information will definitely be in the doc or the extended material of the doc. Um, and his big conversation was we don't have the strategies, the systems, like we do the command structure in firefighting to then transfer over to the liability of if you're going to take on this prescription burn and it gets out of control, what do you do next? Who takes right. on the liability? And is somebody going to stick their neck out to do that? And if the the legal ramifications are not sorted out, which they aren't currently, at least from his perspective, um, how then do you jump in? That right. being said, um, Robert Gray, who's an incredible fire ecologist and um, a great consultant for fire, prescriptive fire, I I had a really tough time trying to track him down and get an interview and then also go and film a prescription burn because A, he was so back to back to back to back in the season and B, the conditions change so rapidly that you end up having to call off a fire the next day, or in his case, flying all the way to a place and then calling out it a two hours before it started. And, and that's something that's really interesting is that one of the main principles, and this goes back to this idea of, you know, playing the hand you're dealt is we need to become of place and an amazing woman named uh, Amy Cardinal Christensen, who's the indigenous fire researcher for the government of Canada, one of hopefully many to follow. Um, I interviewed her and she had this great answer when I asked her, what does the future of fire look like to you? And, and she goes, the future is indigenous. And she's not saying the future is, you know, going back completely to what was, because we, we can't go back just like we can't go back and, and, you know, really shake the heads of some of the people who made these decisions and go, what were you <laughs> thinking? 
Uh, and I think a lot of people want to blame. They want to find somebody to blame. They want to level that blame and they want to have some retribution sure. or some revenge or like there's, there's this Facebook group called the BC, BC wildfire truth, truth out or truth call out group. And there's just a lot of people angry and I get it. Like you lose your house, you disrupt your business. You can't come back from some of the destruction of these fires. And yet this is not the previous government's fault. This is not the previous, previous government's fault. This is 120 years of systematic mindset that came from Europe that didn't acknowledge the existing fire culture replace that fire culture with fire science. And the problem with fire culture is it allows us to live with fire. And the problem with fire science is it just shows us how to burn and what the rate of burning is. It doesn't show us how to live with fire. Um, well, part of the problem there, Javin, is I'm, I'm guessing is that how do you live with fire in a way that's anything at all similar to the way indigenous people did when they were always on the move and in our last 120 years we've built fixed communities we've we've urbanized we've built infrastructure that we've invested you know you you uh, a government will in, will make a 20 or 30 year investment in a bridge or a highway system or a transmission line or a pipeline or whatever it is that's going to take 20 or 30 years to pay for itself or you you build a community somewhere and you don't want that to get wiped out so mm. the ability to, to to kind of dance with nature and and be in movement and be in relationship with it uh, and with fire as being uh, playing a large role in that we've kind of taken uh, ourselves out at the knees in a way that we're, we're not able to do that anymore because of the way that 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 we live now mm-hmm mm-hmm it's a good question how do we how do we live with fire how do we work with fire change is a hundred percent the first ten percent is awareness and it's a prerequisite for all the rest of the change that follows so first ten mm. percent awareness we have to be aware of of a few facts one fire has always existed in the majority of this landscape we call North America. That is a fundamental first principle of North America. We live in a, a fire of culture. Uh, pardon me, we live in a land of fire. Mm -hmm. And those who live successfully here had a culture of fire. So your question is, is very apt and very specific. How do we rebuild a culture fire now in the 21st century where we have urbanized, where we've moved back into the forests? And part of it is understanding the history so in 1910, there was this big burn that had a number of fires that came across North America. And due to our forestry practices, uh, forest fires will take the little stuff normally and leave the big stuff. And folks know this, if you've ever had a campfire and tried to put a big round on a campfire, it doesn't burn too well. And that's dead and desiccated already. Now we're talking about living vegetative structures. Trees don't burn exceptionally well if they're living and well hydrated. It's, it's kind of a difficult thing to do. So right. wildfires, forest fires, take the small stuff and leave the big stuff. Clear cutting takes the big stuff and leaves the little stuff. You can see <laughs> the problem, like right off the bat, not to mention they remove the vegetative sponge that holds water. And this was an amazing fact I found from a researcher. When you get into snowpack, when you get into places that hold the snow for that spring melt, snow will go through this amazing process called sublimation and will go from a solid state, snow, into a gaseous state, vapor, or evaporation, with, with skipping the entire liquid state. And right. for some reason, uh, specifically to do with the shade cover and the temperature fluctuation, 
there's actually more sublimation in a forest than there is in a clear cut. So you will lose your snowpack, let's say up to 40% going back into atmosphere in a tree cover, but in a clear cut, you'll hold on to that and it'll all become liquid, which means we're actually getting more and more melt in the spring. And that's of course having flooding issues and damages. Calgary's a great example, you know, going back to the 2013, um, around my place has been flooded pretty much every single year. So there's a lot of, you know, cofactors and contributors. So if we understand those principles and if we understand those conversations, it's start like our directive of creating a culture of fire becomes pretty clear. We need nature as is. And if we are going to continue with practices of forestry, which other places internationally, the Scandinavian companies, uh, countries come to mind, Wildwood Forest on Vancouver Island, uh, created by Merv Wilkinson come to mind, we can do it in a selective manner. Are the gross profits going to be the same? Nope, definitely not. But if we start to say what the costs of flooding are, what the costs of forest fires are, all of a sudden you start to see the accounting, right? The equation becomes pretty equalized. We may not get the same profits on ClearCut, but we're not getting the same damage costs or the, the interruption, the loss of life, the opportunity costs that are lost when fires come about. So that's, that's the first bit. The second bit is starting to become of place. So for folks that do live in rural areas in fire ecology, just like if you were living in a floodplain, you wouldn't shake your hand hard at the sky if you were in a floodplain and it flooded. You're in a floodplain. You're in right. fire ecology. It's, it's moving backwards to start to say, well, how dare fire come around us when, you know, I, I keep thinking of, of this, this, this quote. And I, I, I think it was, was it uh, John F. Kennedy? It was like, you know, we didn't land here. It landed on us. That, that old chestnut. Oh, it's like, yeah. we, this fire ecology didn't land on us. We landed on it. And so it's incumbent upon us to learn how to live with it, regardless of the time period we're in. So part of it is it burns. So starting to become comfortable with small scale burning, starting to become comfortable with prescription burning and starting to really start to have the resiliency to then look outside of our houses. And here in Canada, it's called, um, uh, fire smart and down in the States, it's called defensible spaces, but looking at fuel loads around our sites and going, wow, there's a lot of fuel here and playing with the three to four meter spacing in between trees, um, removing some of the underbrush, uh, and starting to use that material intelligently. One of the things I had a chat with somebody who works within the fuel lot society of, or association of British Columbia. And their big question was, what do we do with all this material? This is a huge amount of material we have to take out of our forest. Yeah, about 120 years of development. So what do you do with it? So now we take another step back and we say, well, what do we do with all this vegetative material? What can go into high-end, high-grade conversations like timber, furniture? And then as we move down, what can be wildcrafted? How do we tax incentivize folks to go and wildcraft materials from the forest? And then as we move down, is there a value in... Uh, biofuel plants? Is there a benefit to uh, pelletization plants? And then as you move further down, how can we use that material logically and systematically around our, our properties? One of the strategies I've, I've used personally in fire resiliency, working with clients and working with their, their land sites is something called um, bioswales on contour, which is taking low mounds. And this is where people kind of go, wait a second, you're talking about 
you're talking about piling up dead and dry material. I am, but I'm also talking about jumping or crushing it and making it in contact with the soil. And usually doing this at a time where this doesn't turn into a fuse. So not doing it during the summer, but doing it into the fall or into the spring where it can get loaded by moisture. And what Mm. you do is you take material prunings, clippings, and you put them on contour. So you put them level on the ground. So you have this mound, basically, that this snake, this windrow that moves along contour and it interrupts water flow. So any overland water flow interacts with this area, uh, this mound culture, and starts to decompose it. Right. So now you've got this big, long strip that's wet in usually a fire prone forest. I'm in Ponderosa Pine uh, right now. You guys have, you know, Jack and uh, Jack Spruce and a number of of other flammable trees. This is one of those interesting strategies that really has been lost. And it creates more biodiversity, creates habitat for insects, creates habitat for other types of life. It's a nice, simple solution. But again, this isn't a pile. This isn't a big slash pile that's, you know, now meters tall. This is half a meter tall, meter tall max, moves on a contour. So it will interrupt uh, water because water flows at right angles to contours. And then moving up and hearkening back to what um, the fire police or not the fire police, the fire chief of uh, Santa Barbara said, which is agriculture is an incredible ally in a firefight. And so our gardens being irrigated, our fruit trees being irrigated, having food, having fruit, food and, and fruit around a house can actually be a, a, a defensible action because we're going to have moisture laden material and if anyone's ever tried to burn a tomato, you'll know on the grill, it just, you know, it has that wonderful skin that comes off. Same thing with peppers. You know, there's these, these fruits don't exactly burn on a grill. They just, they desiccate and they release their moisture and it's a battle. And this is one of those things that that fire chief said when they were looking at this, um, this fire down in Santa Barbara, all of these agricultural areas around uh, these urban areas really did create a buffer. It's called the, Wildfire Urban Eight Interface Zone, or the WUI, which is <laughs> it's a great acronym. <laughs> it's just one of those you're like, really, did we have to go that far? I guess. Um, but now this actually pre- presents another course of action, which is increasing and incentivizing urban or or municipal agriculture around those areas to give that interface. So. What an incredible opportunity for municipalities or for provinces or states to go, great, we're going to incentivize urban agriculture further than we already do agriculture because it creates uh, a buffer. So there's a tax credit, there's a tax benefit, there's a payment even, because if you actively keep a hydrated landscape in a fire prone area, you're doing a, a public good service. Like what an easy way to help incentivize two things that are really important. One, defensible space, and two, a local food supply. That's a win-win. You got it. it. It's a great example of how the the ancient wisdom of uh, the indigenous peoples of these regions, they, they had to work with what they had. They didn't have all the technology that we have today. And uh, sometimes survival just... Uh, just to survive, you had to work in a way that was in balance because mm. anything that was out of balance, if you propagated that over multiple generations, those people are not going to survive. Mm. So we're we're in a time now where um, everything from 
substance abuse and depression and mental health uh, rates are skyrocketing. Uh, like you, you mentioned, we've we've trashed the planet in terms of biodiversity, uh, the species in the ocean, everything is plummeting. We're, we're in kind of a scary point in the evolution of our species. Mm. And we're feeling the symptoms of that as a culture and as a as a species when it comes to those those symptoms of depression and violence and um, uh, uh, physical ailments, cancer, whatever it might be. What do you think one simple takeaway um, from your perspective after having gone through all of this uh, journey of traveling around and and uh, interviewing people and, and hearing so many diverse perspectives on, and I mean, fire is, is one one example of our relationship with the planet mm. where our stewardship of this this place that we call home is is really failing like there's i don't think there's any question that we're that we are are failing the planet from from your perspective and in this last year this journey that you've they've been on and you've done an amazing job of telling us the story of of some of the stuff you've been learning along the way what what is that 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 main takeaway for you that that is impact do you think will impact your life and that that you wish everyone kind of could take to heart i'm going to invoke somebody else's words because for the most part it seems like what we need to learn and what we need to understand has already been learned before and has already been said really well Masanobu Fukuoka was an incredible Japanese farmer, uh, ex-scientist. He wrote an incredible book called The One Straw Revolution, which I think is required reading for being on the planet. And he had this great saying, which is, when you throw Mother Nature out the window, she comes back with a pitchfork. (laughs) And the crucible of that is we have 4.5 billion years of research and development on this planet. 4.5 billion years. It is pure hubris and pure folly to think 250 years of industrial revolution, you know, three to 400 years of scientific revolution somehow can trump 4.5 billion years of R and D. It's crazy. It's just absolute insanity. And I think what the prime principle here is, is that the more we observe, the more we are aware of, the more we interact with the raw data, the raw experience of living, and the more we harmonize with it, the better our lives are. Hmm. The more we go against that, the more work it takes. And when we talk about depression, when we talk about ailments, when we talk about you know all of these pieces, we took ourselves out of ecology about 14,000 14, 14, years ago with the advent of agriculture. We decided we're going to try and control more and more and more of our outward environment. And we're going to try and bend it to our will, which has a lot of benefits and it has some downsides. If you ask any hunter, what is the difference between the quality of meat of a raised animal versus a, a wild animal that forages and feeds themselves? they'll look at you like you're asking why water is wet. It's it's a <laughs> fundamental truth that the animals that take care of themselves and feed themselves without too much interference with the 
outputs of human society. And this is very true of a number of, of hunters I know who are, are dealing with disease and uh, different ailments to deer and to elk and to moose in certain regions. And, you know, our effects are, are far reaching and, and further reaching all the time. Our plastic load on the planet is far reaching and further reaching all the time. It's really a great moment for everyone to take a step back and go, great, I landed in the 21st century. This is where I am. Uh, and the Chinese proverb of may you be born in interesting times is true for anyone born at any time because it's always interesting because we come with our our <laughs> ancestral cognitive load, so to speak. Um, and then we start to play in the sandbox we're in. But Yeah, we can't do anything about the fact that we were born where and when we were. But we nope. do have some um, some choice and some yeah. responsibility to think about how do we want to spend whatever time we're given in the place that, that we call home. Exactly. And here's the hand you're dealt. So how do you want to play it? And part of it is really do take a look at the hand you're dealt. You're, you're dealt a time and a place and you're dealt a planet. You've been dealt an entire ecology on earth. And this kind of comes full circle coming back to our soil conversation. When we provide artificial nitrogen, um, incredible book called the alchemy of air if anyone's interested in in diving into the whole story of artificial nitrogen and how it came about and its effects on world war ii and, and post-world war ii we disrupt that cycle we disrupt that that food cycle that soil food web in the soil basically the plant becomes dependent on the nitrogen you give it and doesn't have to invest in relationships with uh, nitrogen fixing bacteria or uh, rhizobes or, or any of that. It just gets to be dependent on you. And so when you take that away, there is an adjustment period, just like when you decide to wean yourself off your cell phone or off social media. I was or... just going to say, it sounds like <laughs> someone who's trying to give up Facebook for a week. <laughs> you know, when, when, when you realize the value of the tool, that's one thing, right? The, the interconnection between people is incredible and it's never been more interconnected. And, and I think a lot of people glibly say, and we've never been more lonely. And I think that's probably true. But at the same time, the tool does exist. Uh, and similarly, mycelium, the, the fibrous network that is fungi, has the ability to transfer knowledge and even nutrients and water between two different types of species of tree underneath the soil. There's an incredible network of mycelium that's really starting to be the archetype of of information. And it was just a matter of time, according to people like Paul Stamets, probably the most famous mycologist in the world, a man who studies fungi, that we would come up with this network of the internet. But let's, let's, let, let's keep it, keep it close to heart again. When you think about how we exist and, and coming off dependencies, great. Facebook has a great ability to connect and interact, but maybe the way and how we view it individually. And I think we've all gone through this at one state or another. I had to finally say no more discussions on Facebook for me. So I don't discuss anything with anybody on Facebook because it's just like writing on the bathroom wall, like somebody declares and somebody else declares. And you're literally sitting in a place that has one function. And that's how I kind of look at discussions on Facebook. Um, but it's a great place to connect and interact and share. And so I primarily use it for that functionality. And it works out great for me. I've reduced the frustration I have with it. I've reduced the interaction with I have with it. And I also have 
a, a, a lesson or not a lesson. I have a rule that I have to produce something of value if I decide to be on Facebook. It's either I have to share something of value and write about it or I have to produce at least one piece of content. So I'm actually actively contributing to the conversation. Hmm, I, and great. I think that's what everyone needs to do. They need to take a look at the things. I, I work sometimes with folks who have vice. And my saying is, do you choose your vice or does your vice choose you? Because it's one thing to come home and be like, uh, you know what would make this day better? A beer. And it's another thing to come home and go, I need a beer to forget or I need a beer to relax or I need to X. That's a different conversation. Mm, so, or, or to take it even further to the extreme, to come home and the next thing you know, you're sitting having a beer and it's not like you even chose it. Or you're scrolling for two hours on whatever, um, Instagram, Reddit, your mem site, you know, that's, that's a different conversation entirely. It is. Yeah. The, the topic of an intentional living definitely ties into what we're talking about here, but it's a big topic. And right. It's something that, uh, it's been on my mind a lot lately, just the, and I talk, uh, frequently with, with my wife, Kelly, about it, this idea of having, uh, exploring our own sense of purpose, exploring how can we be more present? How can we be more intentional? How can we create, design, choose the life we're living versus ending up in just doing this because, or, well, we didn't really think this through, but uh, I guess this is what we're doing. <laughs> and for, for the most part, we do a pretty good job of that, but it can, it can uh, be tricky. It's incumbent upon you to go great with the knowledge of prime principles and, and, and natural ecology. How do I want to live? One of the things I find more and more with definitely family members is they have forgotten that for, again, you know, we were, we've been genetically stable for some, somewhere between like 250,000 years to maybe a little over 350. And that body that you have, that I have, that is the gift of years of evolution has to move to be healthy. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just, it's right there on the manual for, you know, a quarter of a million years, our bodies produced, created, and lived the health that we have access to because of movement, because of use. Our lymphatic system moves only when we walk. Like it, there's no pump to it. It pumps because of walking. There's so many of these little pieces about health where it's like, you have to kind of go back 4.5 billion years and then you know, fast forward the tape to humanity, which is just a, you know, just a speck of time in this huge timeline and go, all right, I'm not necessarily going to go and, um, play with fire with, uh, with, uh, uh, a bow and, uh, a drill or something of that factor. You know, Ishii, one of the last remaining wild men was really fond of matches when he finally came out of, of the bush and, and interacted <laughs> with, uh, humanity. But, at the same time, what are, what's fundamental? You get a body and that body's functionality is dependent upon its use. And so if you're not outside interacting with ecology, you're putting yourself at a deficit. We're, we're, we're basically justifying, I see these all the time, we're, we're these studies that say uh, working in the soil is a benefit to mental illness. And you're sitting there, you're going, well, it's a little bit backwards, right? You're, you're saying if you go and do the activities that built you genetically, 
you'll be good. Like you don't say really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing that something like that makes the news in the 21st century. They're like, but guess we, what? We are actually a product of billions of years of evolution. Act like it. <laughs> and we are part of this natural world and these natural systems and everything from our, our mental and spiritual and emotional and obviously our physical well-being is dependent on the relationship and function and, uh, and fitness that we have within yeah. those natural systems. Absolutely. And it either, it even furthers the conversation to, you know, some of the systems that we use for trade, like capitalism, great way to trade, great way to extend trust through, through currency, even though that currency currently is not backed by anything yet. It's a terrible way to, to ascribe value to your life how much you've done, how much you have. Never before in the history of humanity has that been the primary conversation. It's been a conversation, but when you take a look at any text that's lasted for, you know, uh, we'll say men a hundred years, max thousands of years, these are texts that speak about the value of living is the connection to self, the connection to something greater, the connection to family, the connection to understanding your natural gifts and giving them in service to others. Nowhere in there does it say he who has the most things when he dies lives the best life or he who works the most amount of hours in the week has the best life. None of that exists and none of that <laughs> is exceptional living. And yet that's become the predominant conversation. And that's where that, that life design adage comes in. If you don't design your life, somebody else will design it for you. And if they're underneath the, the false premise that capitalism is the best way to ascribe value to living they're going to pass that on to you. If they run a business and you're an employee, they're going to pass that on to you. If they create a product that you buy, they're going to pass that on to you. And if they create a social network system, they're going to pass that on to you. And so it becomes incumbent upon all of us to become very aware that if we're being sold something, chances are it's for the other person's benefit, not for us. Unless they are a small ma and pa shop and they're really interested in making sure it's a good fit for us. They're not in it for, for finance. They're in it for fit. And then on the second side of it, when you throw Mother Nature out the window and she comes back with a pitchfork from the incredible Masanobu Fukuoka, how have we done that personally in our lives? How have we thrown out portions of our own personal ecology? And can we incrementally, slowly, right? We are what we do consistently, not what we do with intensity. We are what we do consistently. Can we introduce that into our minds, into our bodies? One of the things that I've introduced over the last five years is fasting. We did not eat three meals a day. It was the advent of agriculture that promoted this idea of a first meal um, without exception of hospitality and, and a number of other cultural situations. But if you had to go work in a field for eight hours a day, which again, pre the advent of agriculture was not normal, you needed a little bit of fuel because it was a long way to lunch. So right. currently, um, I don't work in agriculture full time. It's a it's a part-time for the gardens I manage and the people I work with. And I was a farmer at one point for a short amount of time. But even then, there are an incredible number of health benefits to giving your body a break. Yeah. <laughs> from food. From digestion. Yeah. From digestion, from processing, the metabolism. Like, this is full circle. Fire inside your body is called metabolism. That's the same thing. It's still fire. It still takes fuel and oxygen and ignition. It's the exact same process. Outside the body, it's flame. Inside the body, it's metabolism. 
Well, if you continually use the body, just as my mechanic told me many times, if you continually use your brakes, what happens to them? They wear out, right? And so it's really important to understand that there are elements of how we lived and how we evolved that it behooves us and benefits us to go and study and understand. And so, you know, I just, it's a very easy thing. I just, I moved breakfast back until breakfast became lunch. And some days do I eat breakfast? Yeah, because I'm hungry and I really can't think. And, you know, and, and, and this isn't about becoming rigid and inflexible. It's about understanding that there's there's a number of principles and processes and, and just parts of life and human ecology that created us. And if we become a little bit more curious, you don't have to be as curious as I am. I'm, I'm definitely on the overboard side of curious and a hungry mind. But if you become a little bit more curious about your body and just start there, because that's your first ecology and you realize that. Inherent to your body is pretty much everything that could make you sick. Everybody has a little bit of E. coli. Everybody has a little bit of cancerous cells. Everybody has a little bit of strep and staph and all of these things that could really take you out. But it is the blend, the harmony of the microbiome, of, of the mycology, of the, of the bacteriology, of, of, of just that small life within you. We're nine-tenths other to start off with. We're only one-tenth human. We have nine-tenths other organisms inside of us that are operating with us. And if that grosses you out, you've gone too far down the scientific reduction hygienic track. (laughs) No, I've heard a lot of of this before and I'm fascinated by it. And I've had a few actually, a few guests on this show where we've talked about microbiome um, and and similar uh, topics. And I think isn't, I think the number, I might get this wrong, but... I think there's is it three trillion um, bacteria living mm. in uh, inside an average human body, mm-hmm. something like that. It's it's an incredible mm-hmm. number. Mm-hmm. And and if we if we move past just the number and we go into okay, if there's that community of microorganisms in our body, and it's nine tenths, so literally ninety percent of us is made up of something else. Are we feeding it properly? Are we watering it properly? Are we exercising it properly? Because think of it this way. Those are the, the cows, the chickens, the pigs that are making the farm that is you work. Right. And if you're, not, putting it. if you're not husbanding them well, they're not going to work well for you. And if you think for one moment that you can be nine-tenths other and that the stewardship of those other organisms doesn't affect you mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, you're out to lunch. You've, you, you've have cognitive dissonance. You're thinking I'm human and that's it. Well, that's not the facts. And so if you want to be a healthy, happy, active, enlivening human being, I've watched people who have had depressive episodes for years, really treat a longstanding, uh, quiet, um, pathogen of something like mono that was just kind of always there in the background and always kind of sapping their energy. Um, treat that and not have to worry about the depression anymore. Like wow. it's, it's incredible once you really take an ecological mindset to living, all of a sudden everything else changes. All of a sudden, when I work with people about limiting beliefs and about behaviors, there's this idea in, in new age pop psychology that you have to get rid of your ego or slay your ego. It's a part of you. Like why do people not understand at this point and juncture of our, our evolution and mentality that just because you drank heavily last night 
and your kidneys and your liver are yelling at you in the morning, you don't cut them out. You don't slay your liver. You don't slay your kidneys. So if you have a part <laughs> of you that is judgmental against other people um, about how they present themselves, they take too much space. You know, it's a pretty common, pretty common belief that I work with folks on. Chances are there's, there's a part of you that had a moment in your lifetime as a child or otherwise that was really impacted or potentially traumatized about taking too much space, usually by a parent or somebody who said harsh words, didn't think about it, but it created this little program in you and you played that out for the rest of your life. Well, we're not going to cut that part out. That's a part of who you are. You can dialogue with it. You can work with it. You can integrate it into who you are. You can facilitate it. But again, this idea of exorcism, this idea of scientific reductionism, this idea of let's just find the offending bit, the cog, right? Taking a machine approach to ecology really does a disservice to what you could potentially have in terms of happiness of life. Yeah, that's so true. And there's, there's so many examples that we could, we could dive into around that, Javin, that, um, that just support that, that view that, um, you know, even if you, even if you look at your own body, we all, we all get one and you think, well, I'm, I'm not my body. I have a body, but I am not my body. I'm, mm. I'm my personality or I'm my, my soul. Well, you still have a body and you need to take care of it. And mm. just like you, you know, like you said, the, the ego might, uh, get in the way sometimes, but it doesn't mean we, th we throw it out. The, mm. the body might not be perfect and it might have challenges, but it's, and it's, and it, you're, and it's true that it doesn't define who we are but it is part of who we are. And it's the thing that carries us around through this world and through this life. So it's important to understand it, to take care of it, to nurture it and, and be a steward of it. And viewing all of this from that vantage point of ecology that you keep coming back to is so fascinating. I think we should wrap it up here just because we're, uh, we're getting long for today. Mm. But um, yeah, my mind is just spinning with all of the... The, all of the, the places where I see this applied to my own life, where I, I look at my community, I look at the things that really matter to me, my church, my, my kids and their school and my own business, my filmmaking career, my marriage. Uh, it's all of, all of the relationships with other humans and with systems and, and organizations and institutions that, that are important to me all of those relationships, uh, I see it differently when you start looking at, at it as a natural um, part of ecology. And um, I'm really excited for, for where you're headed with your film wrapping up. And I guess it's going to be uh, just getting distributed this summer, which is awesome. So where would people uh, be best to go to, to to find out more information on either just to speak to you about any of the stuff that we talked about today or to uh, check out updates on, on how you're doing with Facing Fire, um, just to get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks again for the opportunity to talk. It's been It's been a great pleasure and a great privilege to speak to you. And I just appreciate the invitation. Um, if folks are interested in learning more about my work, you can go to allpointsdesign.ca. If folks are interested in life design conversation, you go to allpointslife.com. And currently, if folks are interested in the 
Facing Fire, Building Resiliency to Wildfire documentary, you can go on to allpointsdesign.ca forward slash facing fire, or you can just go to allpointsdesign and you'll see that there's a little tab there. I tend to post quite a bit on Facebook. So if you look for me, Javin Kirby Bernakovich on Facebook, chances are I'll pop up really quick. And I'm posting more and more as we get into the marketing and the advertising about facing fire and, and sharing a lot of the back end. I'm building a, a back end website for folks to explore more of the interviews in full. Uh, some of the specifics in terms of resiliency and the habits and the techniques. And uh, if this was of value to you and you really enjoyed the podcast, I love hearing from people and just hearing their experiences. So Javan, J-A-V-A-N at allpointsdesign.ca. Thanks so much. Cool. That's awesome. And Javin, we'll, I'll also add some of those links that that you uh, just read out to people. I'll add some of those as hyperlinks in the podcast description. So um, anyone who's interested in getting in touch with Javin, you can look for some links in the episode description. And uh, yeah, thank you again so much, Javin, for, for coming on the show a second time. And for anyone who hasn't already heard the first conversation that we had, I'll post a link to that as well and definitely encourage uh, people to, to check that out. It was an equally fascinating conversation. And once again, Javin, just thank you so much. I really hope that the people got a lot out of this. I know I did today. And I'm looking forward to just following your success and seeing what you do next. <laughs> thanks so much, Ben. It's a real pleasure. And thanks so much for what you do in the world. Thank you. I appreciate that. And this was so much fun. Thanks again for today. Well, there you have it, folks. We just wrapped up a little over an hour. It's hard to believe that that much time has gone by when you're deeply engrossed in such interesting conversation. I am so grateful to Javin uh, for coming on the show a second time. Uh, Again, a reminder that if you haven't listened to that first episode that we did with Javin back in January... That's episode four from season two, and I'll be posting a link to that episode in the show notes, so please be sure to scroll down and check that out. And there will also be some other links there um, to some of the websites that Javin just mentioned. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did, and look forward to having you on next time on the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Take care and be well.